Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Hello, this is Dr. Dawn, and I'm having to provide you with a recorded program as I have developed some difficulty with my voice. Don't worry, it's not a stroke or anything serious. I hope to be well by next week, but in the meantime, I hope this recorded program will provide you with entertainment and education and remind you of the value of KSQD and all of its wonderful programming. Please, if you're able to donate at this time to help us keep this wonderful station going, please do so. Hi, I'm Dr. Don, and this week we're going to be talking about exons, introns, transposons, methylation, microRNA, and a host of other characters as bizarre and surreal as anything that Lewis Carroll ever came up with for his lovely little Alice. Join me for a tour of Dr. Don's cabinet of genetic curiosities. I shall assume that you have a nodding acquaintance with DNA, with the idea that there is a genetic code, that three letters of the code specify an amino acid, and that the cells take these amino acids and string them together to form proteins, which are the basic structure of life and physiology. But if we're going to begin at the true beginning of this chicken and egg tale, we have to start with RNA, LUCA, which stands for Last Universal Common Ancestor. The clues were there all along. RNA is a very, very funny substance. It is the heart of the ribosome, the cellular machine that converts messenger RNA into protein. It is the heart of the message itself, as the transcription off of your double-stranded DNA is a single strand of messenger RNA, and the carrier for the amino acids is actually made up of another kind of RNA, a T-shaped molecule called transfer RNA. Self-replicating RNA can be manufactured in the lab in a test tube by simply putting the components together and hitting it with an energy charge, similar to what would have happened back on the primordial soup of the earth before any living organisms existed. There would have been volcanic activity and lightning strikes and molecules. Eventually, a molecule learned how to perpetuate itself, but it still had problems. It was unstable and easily broken up. Somewhere along the way, an organism learned not to use RNA to store its precious genetic code, but instead to transform that RNA into DNA, a much more stable molecule because of its double helix and internal bonding, therefore able to survive heat and lightning strikes and whatever the, let's just say, rough-and-tumble environment of early planet Earth could throw at it survive and thrive. 
and that's where we come to Luca. Luca probably lived down in the thermal vents at the bottoms of the ocean. Our primary inheritance from Luca is this. We all share the same code. All creatures on this planet. All creatures great and small. CGA means arginine. GCG means alanine for everybody. Which means, of course, we can speak each other's language. Which is why, among other things, we grow insulin in vats of yeast. It's also why we can use a repurposed part of a bacterial immune system defense against viruses called CRISPR to edit our own DNA, cutting and pasting bits of it, replacing bad genes with good, possibly also opening up a Pandora's box of human miscalculation in the next hundred years. If you take a rope and begin twisting it clockwise, eventually it will begin to twist on itself. If you keep twisting, the twists will twist on themselves and form knobs. This is exactly what primitive DNA probably did. Now we have a much more sophisticated folding system. The bacteria have a single loop of DNA, whereas we have sticks of twisted up DNA called chromosomes. We're going to zero in on chromosome one for the moment. On the long arm of chromosome one, there's a sequence of about 120 letters, those A, C, G's, and T's again, that repeats over and over and over again. Between each repeat, there's a little bit of random text, but that paragraph of 120 letters keeps coming back over and over again, rather like an earworm on the chromosome. This short paragraph is the sequence to form 5-SRNA. 5-SRNA is the core functional molecule of the ribosome, which is the core functional and highly intricate molecular machine that actually takes the transcribed DNA and turns it into a string of amino acids, otherwise known as a protein. This process is called translation. Now that code that gets transcribed, well, to quote the bard, I there's the rub, because any problems with spelling, any typographical errors that happen during the process of cell division, well, they can impact the sequence of amino acids. If you change a C to a T, you change from one amino acid to another. Some have positive charges on their outside surface, some have negative charges, some are neutral. And as this protein is spit out in a linear sequence by the ribosome, the positive and negative charges cause it to twist and shift and shape itself in a particular way a shape that is reproducible because of the sequence of charges which are emitted out of the hind end of the ribosome. You could say pooped out, but, oh, I think that's a little too prosaic and earthy for what is, in fact, the miraculous process of life itself. But nevertheless, it is the shape of the protein that determines its function. And it is a sequence of amino acids and the charges on these amino acids that determine the shape. So when you shift that charge just a little bit from a positive to a negative, from a negative to a neutral, you change the curvature 
of the molecule. And in doing so, you may affect its function in a profound way. The most classic example of this is probably sickle cell anemia, a situation in which there is one substitution on hemoglobin. And instead of making normal hemoglobin, you make sickle hemoglobin. Why do they call it that? Well, because under certain conditions, specifically low oxygen tension, the molecule hemoglobin actually changes into a sharp boomerang double-pointed knife. And this double-pointed knife actually pierces the cell wall of the red blood cell and ruptures it. It creates a seriously painful condition, and it happens more frequently under conditions of stress, such as infection. And sickle cell crisis is a dangerous disease, which occurs in people who have two bad copies of the hemoglobin. Sickle cell anemia, it's called, because it's also associated with loss of red blood cells from the sickling and therefore anemia. But it's the painful crises that create the abysmal quality of life and the potential shortened lifespan of people who suffer from this small amino acid substitution. Just a simple spelling error. Parenthetically, it stayed in the human genome rather than being weeded out by natural selection because there's actually a selective advantage to sickle cell hemoglobin. If you have one copy of it, malaria doesn't like the taste of your blood. Therefore, People with one copy actually do better when they have malaria. They have fewer microorganisms growing in their bloodstream and therefore less problems, less disease. So they're sort of semi-immune. Going back to genetics and not wanting to get too deep in the weeds here, if both parents have one copy of the sickle cell gene, and one good copy, they'll both be relatively immune to malaria, and so will 50% of their offspring. One of their offspring, out of four, I should say, so if they have four kids, one will be completely vulnerable to malaria with normal hemoglobin, one will have sickle cell disease and probably die young, and two will be immune. So where there is a selective pressure, such as the Anopheles mosquito, and malaria, you're going to have a situation where that gene is actually going to persist because it confers an advantage under enough of the time to be worth keeping in the human genome. This is a really good example of how evolution, environment, and genetics work together. I'm trying to stay away from history in my exposition of the cabinet of genetic curiosities because most of the books about this get bogged down in history. But just a little tidbit, it's been a little over a hundred years, it was 1909 to be exact, when a doctor published a book about inborn errors of metabolism. By this time, medicine was becoming seriously scientific and people had noticed these hereditary diseases and with the biochemistry that existed at that time, they were able to identify that some of these seemed to be due to either an overproduction of a certain thing 
or an under-processing of a certain thing, or in the case of sickle cell anemia, for example, simply a aberrant function of a certain thing. And these things were the products of genes. Most disease, unfortunately for us, is not related to a single transcription error in a single gene. Most diseases are complex entities composed of combination of genetic variations and a set of environmental circumstances and exposure which lead to the development of a medical physiological aberration that we refer to as a disease. We're going to spend some time now in the cabinet of curiosities, having opened the squeaky doors of the cabinet, to pull out some labeled drawers and examine the, let's call it the anatomy and circumstances of a series of this sort of disease. Before we get deeper into the weeds, curiouser and curiouser. The first drawer I want to open is sticking a little bit. I'll have to give it a hard tug. There we go. It's the drawer labeled Huntington's disease. You probably know about Huntington's disease because someone very famous, a musician called Woody Guthrie, died of it. you got to love this part of the story. Woody came from a family that was originally identified in 1872 in Long Island. All of the people who got Huntington's were descendants of two brothers that immigrated from Suffolk, England in 1630. By the way, several of their descendants were burnt as witches in Salem in 1693, so possibly because they were manifesting the symptoms of the disease, which only shows up in middle age after people have already reproduced, hence its persistence in the genome. The disease itself is like something out of a witch doctor's curse. First, you have a slight deterioration in your cognitive faculties. Then you begin having jerking limbs, depression, hallucinations, delusions, and over the case of 15 to 25 years, you die. The disease is autosomal dominant, which means if you inherit even one copy of it, you are doomed. As it happens, Arlo Guthrie, the son of Woody, did not get a copy of his father's lethal gene. It took until 1993 for the actual gene to be identified. They named it Huntington, T-I-N. By the way, of course, the disease is named after the doctor first reported it, because, hey, that's how we do things in medicine. And in the DNA of a person with Huntington, they're not missing a gene, and it isn't actually a single-point mutation like what you see in sickle cell. Instead, it's a stutter, a stutter of a single word, C-A-G, C-A-G, C-A-G. And this repetition continues in all of us who have the Huntington gene. Sometimes it's six times. Sometimes it's 35. Sometimes it's more. And this is the disease. If the repetition, if the stutter is 
under 35, you'll be fine. Most of us have 10 to 15 repeats. If you have more than 35, more than 39, in midlife, you'll start to lose your balance, become steadily more incapable of looking after yourself, and eventually die prematurely. The CAG is the word that spells glutamine. And what happens with too many repeats is that you have too many of the amino acid glutamine in the protein for the protein Huntington to actually work well and particularly to be disposed of. Just like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's, it is the mutant protein gradually accumulating over time that eventually leads to the symptoms of the disease. This gene stuttering effect has also occurred in other genetic diseases that you may have heard of. Fragile X syndrome, a common form of mental retardation, is caused by a CCG repeat. There's also a disease called myotonic dystrophy, where a CTG repeats from 50 to 1,000 times on chromosome 19. There are more than a dozen human diseases caused by expanded three-letter word repeats, basically stuttering and in, in dropping too many amino acids into the shape of the protein sequence to allow for normal folding. Also, besides folding abnormally, these proteins are difficult to digest, so they can't be broken down, and they accumulate in the body, eventually causing cellular degeneration. ...of disease is particularly common in neurologic disorders. Well, I hope you're not getting bored, but uh, let's talk about sex. There's a little thing on the X chromosome called the SRY gene. It's also on the Y chromosome. It's one of the few genes, in fact, that still exist on the Y chromosome. And we won't dive deeper into the rabbit hole to discuss why that is. But SRY is peculiar in a number of ways, but it is the switching signal that tells an embryo that it's going to develop into a male. It begins a whole cascade of events that lead to masculinization of the embryo. There aren't a lot of genes that have this kind of power. And here's another interesting thing about SRY. Let's call him Siri for short. Siri has almost no point mutations. That is to say, the little bits of irrelevant spelling differences that often crop up in that third uh third uh, letter in the codon. No, those don't happen in Siri. It is highly conserved. In fact, it's a variation-free gene that has changed almost not at all since the last common ancestor of all humans about 200,000 years ago. But our Siri is different from that of a chimpanzee, different from that of a gorilla, and it has a lot of variation. 10 times more than we would ordinarily expect with our near cousins. So what's that all about? Well, we don't have any Neanderthals wandering around to test, but the obvious implication is that it prevents crossbreeding 
and therefore promotes speciation, that is to say, separation between different lines of hominids. So, while you may refer to your Uncle George as a gorilla, he probably isn't. Okay, new topic. 97% of our entire genome does not consist of true genes that code for proteins, but instead a menagerie of strange entities called pseudogenes, retro-pseudogenes, satellites, mini-satellites, microsatellites, transposons, retro-transposons, and collectively known as junk DNA. Sometimes selfish DNA is used. But these are genes of a special kind. Most are just chunks of DNA that are never transcribed into protein. But the story of this stuff is fascinating because it does replicate and it has a kind of bizarre world of warfare going on that is completely outside of our normal conception of the genome. Wheels within wheels within wheels, right? Curiouser and curiouser, said Alice. Riddle me this, Batman. What is one of the most common genes in the entire human genome? Well, it's a gene for a protein called reverse transcriptase. And reverse transcriptase is the gene that really serves no purpose at all as far as the human body is concerned. You find it in RNA viruses, of course, because what it does is it takes RNA and turns it back into DNA. Remember, usually it's in the opposite direction. And that DNA can then incorporate into a genome. But there are several hundred copies of this in the human genome, possibly thousands spread across multiple human chromosomes. What's it doing there? Well, hold on to your hats and be prepared to be creeped out. We are actually carrying hundreds of free riders. No, thousands. There are several thousand almost complete copies of complete viral genomes integrated into the human genome. Some of these are from pigs. Some of them are from other food animals, some of them are for plants, and most of them are inert because they're missing a critical gene. They're called human endogenous retroviruses, or HERVs, and they account for more than 1% of the entire genome. That may not sound like a lot until you realize that only 3% of the entire genome is coding protein genes. Okay, Hang on to your hats, because 14% of your genome is composed of something called line 1, L-I-N-E-1. This is a paragraph of DNA between 1,000 and 6,000 letters long that includes the complete recipe for reverse transcriptase near the middle. There's about 100,000 copies of them in each copy of your genome, but they might be repeated several times, and they add up to 14.6% of the entire genome, five times as common as your own genes. This thing can get itself transcribed, make its own reverse transcriptase, use that reverse transcriptase to make a DNA copy of itself, and insert that copy anywhere among the genes. This is probably why there are so many copies of this in the first place. It 
is a repetitive paragraph of gene information that is really excellent at getting itself copied, getting itself duplicated. It exists to be copied. It is a self-copying machine. That's all it does, except when it copies itself into the wrong place. But wait, there's more. There's another evil actor called Alice, A-L-U-S. This is a short bit of DNA, 180 to 280 letters long, and it doesn't contain reverse transcriptase. It's just really good at getting your own copies of reverse transcriptase to help it duplicate. You'll find this about a million times in the hemon genome. Maybe 10% of your genome are copies of the same 180 to 280 repeat. But the problem is this ALU sequence bears a close resemblance to a real gene, a gene for the ribosome. And this gene is what has been called an internal promoter, meaning that the message is basically read me written in a sequence in the middle of the gene. Thus, it's an ideal candidate for creating inappropriate gene proliferation if it gets inserted into the wrong place. Essentially, the implications of this is that the human genome is littered, infested, you might say, with the equivalent of a computer virus, selfish, parasitic stretches of sequence which exist for the pure and simple purpose that they're good at getting themselves duplicated. We're full of digital chain letters, advertisements, if you will. We're about 35% selfish DNA that just exists to reproduce itself. Free riders, if you will. Cruft. Nobody suspected this before the Human Genome Project. Now, our real problem as a species is because these bits of parasitic DNA can jump, they'll go ahead and jump into the middle of good functional genes and mess them up. They've caused mutations by landing in the middle of the blood clotting factor genes. They're a cause of new hemophilia. And about one in every 700 human mutations is caused by these jumping genes, as they were called by a under-recognized and fundamentally important female scientist called Barbara McClintock. Take uh, one step deeper into the cabinet of curiosities and talk briefly about xenografts. So the line one and the Alice genes are in humans. Pigs and other mammals have their own versions of these. And the real question is, how do we control them? And what happens if we start doing xenografts? Now, xenografts is where you play around with CRISPR, alter the DNA, and grow a human liver in a pig, kill the pig, and transplant the human liver, which, by the way, has all of the histocompatibility tissue matching antigens of the recipient already embedded in the tissue. Well, what happens is a few bits of DNA that might be these transposons, jumping genes, come along for the ride and create cancer in the recipient. 
Who knows? They might even make their way into the genetic material, although I think that's quite unlikely. And what is the mechanism for protecting us from all of this jumping genome foreign DNA? Well, it's probably your friend and mine, methylation, specifically cytosine methylation, one of the four codons of DNA. We've thought of the primary purpose of methylation being switching off our own genes. In other words, when we don't need them anymore, the gene for growing new blood vessels, which we really need when we're an embryo. But, you know, once we're an adult, we probably don't need that very much and probably should not turn it on. So we throw a carbon and three hydrogens at the promoter region of the DNA, and it no longer gets transcribed. In cancer cells, one of the first things that happens is demethylation of the genes. In effect, all of the silenced embryologic genes are turned back on, promoting such qualities that a cancer might like, like rapid growth, failure of contact inhibition. When it bumps into other cells, it doesn't stop growing politely. It keeps growing. Also, the ability to demand new blood vessels to form. All of these factors are things that are extremely useful in an embryo and also in a cancer, but not so useful in a well-organized, well-behaved adult human body. A large part of my medical practice includes screening people for methylation problems. There are some single nucleotide polymorphisms. This means that one spelling error in a single codon creates a slight variation in the function of the protein, not enough to make it a disease, but enough to slow it down. People with this sort of mutation will often have an increased risk of cancer, particularly because methylation is so important in silencing both these transposons, these parasitic bits of DNA that like to jump around, and also our own genetic material from the embryonic stage, the so-called oncogenes. Many people with these sorts of genetic variations can reduce their risk by doing nutritional manipulation with various types of vitamins that skip over the damaged bit of internal processing and restore their methylation to normal levels. The MTHFR mutation, which stands for methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase mutation, is one of the better understood versions of this sort of a problem with methylation. People who have a difference in the functioning of this enzyme are more likely to develop cancer due to improper gene silencing via methylation, and they also have increased risks of heart disease related to the fact that they accumulate a toxic 
intermediate called homocysteine, which is itself an actual direct irritant to the cardiovascular system, particularly the lining of the blood vessels. This leads to rapid and accelerated atherosclerosis at an earlier age. Time to open another squeaky drawer in the cabinet and see what we find under the label of hypervariable mini-satellite DNA. Among other things, this is where genetic fingerprinting gets really up close and personal. This little genetic curiosity has really revolutionized forensics over the last 25 years. It's a neat little sequence, uh, usually about 20 base pairs long. It is repeated over and over again in little locations across the genome. There's some on every chromosome, more than a thousand in the entire genome. And the word is a little bit variable, uh, differences among families and individuals, but it usually contains the same central letters, G-G-G-C-A-G-G-A-X-G. X can be any letter. And this is the very sequence that's used by bacteria to initiate the swapping of genes with other bacteria of the same species. And it seems to be involved in the encouragement of gene swapping between chromosomes and us as well. There can be 10 repeats. There might be 50 or 5 repeats. And following instructions, the cells start swapping the phrases with the equivalent series on the other copy of the same chromosome. But in doing so, it makes fairly frequent mistakes, and particularly adding or subtracting the number of repeats. In this way, over time, each series of repeats gradually changes length fast enough so that it's different for every individual, but slowly enough that people mostly have the same repeat lengths as their parents. Since there are thousands of series, the result is a unique set of repeats for each individual. So it's not the genes themselves at all, but rather these intron repeating sequences that form the basis for our genetic forensics. Recently, of course, the published whole exon sequences, of, like those produced by Ancestry.com and 23andMe, have been used to identify suspected killers like the Golden State Killer, but... The confirmatory testing is still done through these absolutely unique between individuals mini-satellite DNA sequences. So far, we've been focusing mainly on repetition mutations and duplications. Now we're going to spend a little time differentiating between two other types of mutations, these which occur primarily in coding DNA or in the exons. One of these is single nucleotide polymorphisms, and the other is called a deletion mutation. A single nucleotide polymorphism is a spelling error. A C gets changed to a T or a G, and thus, in general, if it has any significance at all, it causes either another amino acid to be placed in the sequence of the protein, which may affect its folding or shape. We've already discussed that in the context of sickle cell. Or it may result in a premature termination or truncation, thus creating a shortened or incomplete 
protein, which may or may not be effective in its intended purposes. Most of the time, single nucleotide polymorphisms do not completely destroy the ability of a gene to be transcribed and to function. The primary difference between them and a deletion gene is that when you delete a single letter, this creates what's called a frame shift mutation. In this case, all of the subsequent letters are misspelled, leading to a completely different sequence of amino acids and a completely different protein being produced, effectively erasing the entire gene from that chromosome. It wasn't discovered until the 1990s that the blood groups are actually genes for an enzyme called galactosyl transferase. It's a protein that catalyzes a chemical reaction. And the difference between the A gene in the B genes is only about seven letters out of the thousand-odd that compose the gene itself. The four letters that matter are numbers 523, 700, 793, and 800 on the gene sequence. In people with type A blood, these letters are C at 523, G at 700, C at 793, and G at 800. And in people with type B blood, they read respectively G, A, A, and C. These four little differences are enough to make a protein sufficiently different that it can cause an immune reaction when given to an individual who does not already possess that gene. Type O is something altogether different. Instead of a substitution or a single nucleotide polymorphism, it's a deletion. One-fifth of the way through the gene for galactosyl transferase, the 258th letter to be exact, the letter G is missing altogether. This throws everything off. The person does not have a functioning copy of galactosyl transferase. They seem to get along quite well without it. Obviously, another enzyme does the job, but they make a different protein. Now, here's where it gets a little more interesting. People with type O blood are much more susceptible to infection with cholera. And not only are people with type O blood more susceptible, but people with AB blood are very unsusceptible, so powerful is the resistance in AB blood people that they're virtually immune to cholera. No one knows exactly how the AB genotype offers protection, or at least I wasn't able to find that information. But it's really interesting to look at disease variation in blood type. People with type O blood seem to be slightly more resistant to malaria. They're also slightly less likely to get cancers of various kinds. So these bits of extra resistance probably counterbalance the negative effect of the vulnerability to cholera such that the type O variation doesn't just die out in the genome. More accurately, I should call it the range of human genomes because there is no single human genome. We all are varied and different in terms of our genome, but the, the overlaps and similarities in functionality are what make it the human genome, not the specific individual's entire verbatim sequence. It's also important to remember that neither genes 
themselves are good or bad. There are no such things as disease genes, really. For example, there is a gene called the vitamin D receptor. A single nucleotide polymorphism here actually confers a substantial resistance to tuberculosis, but also an increased susceptibility to osteoporosis. A hundred years ago, that was a good gene to have. Nowadays, maybe not so much. Three deletions in a gene called CFTR create an abnormal protein. If you've got two copies of this genetic flaw, you will develop cystic fibrosis in childhood, a severe lung and intestinal disease. But people with just one copy of this version of CFTR, in other words, the heterozygous cystic fibrosis carrier, is protected against typhoid fever. They do not get this debilitating dysentery. Thus, the gene is preserved in the population because the heterozygotes have enhanced survival. About one in five people are genetically unable to release the water-soluble form of the ABO blood group into their saliva and other body fluids. You'll often hear of them referred to on crime shows as non-secretors. Non-secretors are actually more likely to suffer from various diseases, including meningitis, yeast infections, and recurrent urinary tract infections, but they're less likely to suffer from influenza. Wherever you look, genetic diversity has an effect on how that person's body reacts with the environment, sometimes making them a target for one disease while protecting them from others. With all this talk of heterozygosity giving you protection from disease without the actual vulnerability of getting the problem that you get from not having a working copy of the protein, you'd think that there would be a way for animals to avoid mating with brothers and cousins that would thus increase the risk that their offspring would get two copies of these deleterious mutations. And in fact, it turns out there is. There's a group of genes called the major histocompatibility antigens. They're found on chromosome 6. They're involved in defining self and non-self. They're highly variable genes. In mice... A female mouse will prefer to mate with a male that has the most different MHC genes that she can find. She finds this out by sniffing the urine. In an experiment done in the 1990s, people were asked to sleep with a cotton t-shirt, no deodorant, and no perfume for two nights, and then hand those t-shirts over to the scientists, who then link them to the blood tests, identifying their specific MHC antigens. They then asked a total of 121 men and women to sniff the armpits of those dirty t-shirts and rank them according to attractiveness of smell. Now, obviously, these were heterosexuals, and they were given the opposite sex's dirty t-shirts to smell. What they found was that both groups, but particularly females, ranked the t-shirts based on the variation from their own 
major histocompatibility groups, which makes a lot of sense if you're trying to avoid giving birth to any homozygotes for deleterious mutations. Homozygotes have two copies. Heterozygotes have one copy of the wild type and the disease variant. These are the protected groups. I think most of us have probably had the experience of getting up close and personal with someone during a date and having the sparks just not fly. Well, I wonder if maybe at least some of the time that isn't that the MHC antigens are just a little too close for safety. So let's turn to what happens in inbred populations. There's uh, two groups that are favorites for genetic researchers in this regard. One is the uh, entire population of Iceland. Uh, There is about 270 Icelanders, and they all trace their descent from uh, a few thousand Vikings who got to Iceland just before the Little Ice Age. They were isolated for about 1,100 years, and then they had a plague in the 14th century. And so it's a highly inbred population. There is an Icelandic version of the breast cancer mutation BRCA2 on chromosome 13. And all of the descendants with this mutation can be traced back to a common ancestor born in 1711. A different mutation in a different place on the same gene is relatively common in people of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. About 8% of Jewish breast cancer cases in younger women uh, are attributable to this single mutation. Interestingly enough, there is a group in the United States called the Committee for the Prevention of Jewish Genetic Disease, It organizes the testing of Jewish schoolchildren's blood. They have a database, and they assign an anonymous number to each child. Later on, when these children grow up, if the matchmakers call the hotline and quote the two anonymous numbers of the individuals who are considering marriage, the Database will be checked, and if they are both carriers of the same mutation for either Tay-Sachs disease or cystic fibrosis, the committee will advise against the marriage. The practical results of this over a couple of decades are quite impressive. Cystic fibrosis has been virtually eliminated from the Jewish population of the United States. What about Tay-Sachs? Well, surprise, surprise, being heterozygous for Tay-Sachs, actually offers a fair amount of resistance against tuberculosis, something that's pretty handy if you're forced into ghettos and are living in close quarters for centuries as an underclass in medieval and, and I'm sorry to say, many places of Europe until well into the second half of the 20th century. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky 
Music by John Scoville.